If they're doing Sunday school in there, we could be in trouble. Okay. We got Belgic Confession, Heidelberg Catechism. So the Heidelberg Catechism comes after the Belgic Confession because the Belgic Confession came first. Um, We're beginning today our probably year and a half study of the Heidelberg Catechism in adult Sunday school. And the obvious thing we should do with the Heidelberg Catechism before we study it is confess it together. Beginning at question number one, Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. How many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Well, thank you. So as I said, this morning we're beginning uh, what's probably going to be about a year and a half study through the Huddleberg Catechism. I just want to give you a little bit of background of why we're doing this and what, in fact, we're doing. You'll have noticed when you looked at your hymnal that this is Lord's Day number one. In the Dutch Reformed tradition, they've broken down the entire Heidelberg Catechism into 52 weeks. And the idea is, is if you go through the entire catechism in the course of one year, um, you'll be getting a systematic presentation, a reminder in your heart and mind of the main points of Christian doctrine. Well, we're not Dutch Reformed, and we thought, though, that this would be a really useful thing for our congregation to do. But because we have fellowship lunches, we'll have some meetings and so on, instead of doing it in a year, yes, us Scottish people, well, we're on the Scottish side, even though I don't really see a lot of Scottish people here, we're going to be a little slower. It's going to take us about a year and a half to work our way through this. And our plan is, is that in the morning or early afternoon, we'll be covering the Heidelberg Catechism systematically in Sunday school. And on the corresponding Sunday evening, I will be preaching from a portion of God's word that touches on one of these points. I want to make clear to you that I'm not going to be preaching the catechism in the evening. I'm going to be preaching a passage of scripture that teaches something from that day's catechism lesson. And I think for many of you, you would benefit a great deal if you participate in both of those. And also, when you're not here on a Sunday, um, yes, by all means, continue to look at the catechism, but Lord willing, they'll be recorded. You might want to listen to what we Uh, talked about that week, uh, it really will do you a a great deal of good. It's not like one Sunday, you you just got this eye-opening moment. Instead, it's like putting brick after brick, and you're building up the the house of your understanding on what is really solid ground. The question and answers for the first Lord's Day um, actually introduced the entire catechism. We're going to see that the catechism is broken up into three main sections, but the first Lord's Day is an introduction to the entire catechism this is put together. 
for reasons that will become clear in a moment, I actually want to begin with the second question and answer rather than the first. The Catechism asks, how many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? The answer is three. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. The common standard shorthand for describing this threefold division is this. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Say that again. Guilt, grace, gratitude. I want to encourage you. Get that shorthand in your mind. It's a very useful way to think about the Christian faith and the Christian life. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Nevertheless, I'd like to make a few observations about that structure um, that I think will be helpful for us. First, um, I think it's important to notice that while the entire catechism is structured in these three categories, they're not structured evenly in these three categories. Uh, For example, the first Lord's Day has two questions. Guilt has nine questions. So even if you take those two things together, the introduction and guilt, it makes up 8.5% of the catechism. That means that 91.5% of the catechism, see, I did math in college, 91.5% of the catechism is about grace and gratitude. And what I want to suggest is that's actually a really good model for your own life. We do have to understand our sin and misery, but God is not calling us to wallow in it, right? The primary place that you ought to be spending your thinking and meditating upon God and his will for your life is upon his grace and your grateful response to it. Second, please note, well, maybe you don't know this yet, but it will happen. You will get there. Please note that the Heidelberg Catechism puts the moral law an exposition of the Ten Commandments, in the gratitude section. That is, the law of God is intended to function as a guide for our life as a grateful response to his prior grace. It's become quite uh, common um, over the past few decades for people, even in the Reformed world, to primarily focus on the law in terms of the law revealing our guilt. Let's be clear God does sometimes use the law law of God to reveal our guilt so that we will flee from ourselves and turn to Christ. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing. But overwhelmingly in the Bible, the Bible almost always treats the law in this category that we would think of as our grateful response. That is, how are we to live as God's people? Um, This is one of the reasons when we recite the Ten Commandments in this church, uh, I recite the uh, prelude. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. It's very important to understand that that's the way God gives us his law. His grace comes first, and his law is intended not as a ladder that we climb up to God, but as a guide for us in our lives, that we would live lives that honor God, we would know his will, and we would do it as our grateful response to his prior grace. Third, while guilt is a wonderful term um, to describe our struggle, um, you'll note that the catechism doesn't simply say guilt. 
right? It says, my sin and misery. Well, keep guilt in your mind. It's really helpful. Plus, you know, guilt, grace, gratitude is easy to remember. But it's helpful to realize, or at least occasionally remind ourselves of, the catechism has something broader in mind. Our misery in this world is not entirely because of our own personal sin. Right now, you might be zealously pursuing God for righteousness and suffering for that. And so the fact that you have a lot of suffering and pain in your life ought not to make you think automatically, well, I must really not be honoring God right now. So I just want you to nuance out that, that term guilt a little bit and realize it's all a consequence of sin, but not necessarily personally your sin. Right? God, God is giving us comfort in the midst of our mis- misery and, yes, my own sin as well. Of course, what that means is, since we live in a fallen world, and we are, after all, sinners, every single person on the face of the earth needs comfort to deal with the radical problem of the misery that we find ourselves in. So where do people turn for that? This is my question for you. Uh, Where do people get comfort for the fact that we live in a state of sin and misery? Don't make me call on Isabel. She knows the answer, but she doesn't want to show off. Yes, Denise. Turn to Jesus. Yeah, so, I mean, thankfully, one of the places where people try to find comfort from the misery of this life is in Jesus Christ. Where else? Death. Yeah, so actually, people, um, people want to escape the misery. The misery is so difficult that they will choose to take their own life. Here's a staggering statistic about how things have changed in the Western world uh, in my lifetime. Suicide is now the sixth leading cause of death in Canada. It's number six. Part of this is is because Canada has adopted very aggressive euthanasia laws. Um, this This is really quite shocking. You can call a suicide helpline in Canada... And one of the things they may offer to help you with is how you can take your own life. So you thought your answer was dark. To me, the fact that there's a government helpline that's helping you kill yourself, uh, that's that's even darker. But yes, it's true. The, The misery and suffering of this life can become so intense that people would rather die than continue to face it. Where else do people seek um, comfort in the midst of the miseries of this life? There are lots of ways. I mean, this is a common thing. It's universal. Yeah, addictions to drugs and alcohol, right? So, I mean, one of the very common things, we think particularly um, historically, much more so than in terms of pills and other things, is actually alcohol has been with us for a long time. And, um, you know, in the Bible, people have a glass of wine and cheers your heart. That's a perfectly good thing. But people move from that to, I'm going to drown out my sorrows by aggressively drinking, or other drugs and so on, whether they're legal or illicit. Uh, what else? There's a couple really common in our day. John? Yeah, 
that John says, well, part of the thing is distracting yourself. And uh, by the way, that's a really important thing because uh, America, probably, probably true in other Western countries, but we're a very distracted people. We distract ourselves from the reality of our lives as an escape. And one of the ways we do that is through entertainment. Again, it's not intrinsically wrong to enjoy entertainment, right? Enjoy creative things, go enjoy a soccer game, whatever it happens to be. But, to use the title of a, a really poignant book, Americans are often amusing ourselves to death. That is, the life that we have where we're supposed to be productive is so miserable to us in terms of relationships, our jobs, whatever it happens to be, that we end up spending huge amounts of time on television, video games, whatever. Uh, by the way, I want to encourage you to actually think about this in your own life, because we're confessing that our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ, um, it might be an interesting indicator for you if you're watching 30 hours of television every week, which I think is about the average for Americans. Right? It's, it's hard for me to see how we can do watch that much television, maybe if you're entirely uh, bound up in a bed or something, but even then there's, there's better things to do with your time. That seems like an overkill of, of amusing yourself and doing it so that you're really choosing to not live. Right? You're not choosing to live to God's glory, you're choosing simply to say, I'm going to numb myself with all these distractions. Uh, anything else? I think that's probably the main ones. Yes, Michelle. Oh. Yeah, that's a great example, Michelle. I like that. Activism is the answer Michelle gave. And it's sort of, I'm miserable, but I'm going to get really devoted to something, maybe really passionate about it, throw myself into it. And I want to say, actually, today... Um, this may seem more like expressing misery than covering it, but I think they're actually pretty close. It's become common for people to use anger to cover over their own hurt, right? So um, you go into various social media things, and people just, you know, to strangers, they don't even know we're calling them idiots and stupid and whatever it happens to be, and they're kind of lining up on Michelle's thing. Like, I have a side, I have an identity, I'm finding value in that. But obviously, those are not things that are going to provide real comfort for us. Um, so that there are a lot of ways in a fallen and broken world that people seek comfort, and I want to suggest that actually everybody seeks comfort. Right? It's, not, it's, not, it's not unique to Christians, and it's not unique to people that do it in really destructive ways. Everybody seeks comfort because everybody experiences misery and sin, their own sin and others, in this world. Well, as I mentioned, we all need comfort in this life. But before we look at the first answer in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, I ought to ask, do you have any questions about the second question? Right, before I move on, um, this, this is, after all, an interactive class, and my desire is actually to answer your questions, not simply to give you my answers to my questions. Any thoughts at all about the second question? It's pretty straightforward. Guilt, grace, and gratitude... Please remember they're not equal. Guilt is an introduction, a prelude to the focus on grace and gratitude. Anything at all? Well, let's move to the big one, which is the first question and answer. When I told Kristen, um, you know, we're doing the Hutterberg Catechism, and she looked and said, you're doing two questions in one week? I mean, you can't possibly cover the answer for the first question and answer of the Hutterberg Catechism in one week. And I said, well, we can if we stay here to five. <laughs> no, I did not say that. Um, 
the, the point is we're not going to cover it. There is an enormous depth of riches in this uh, catechism uh, uh, answer. Uh, we don't have to cover it all today because as we go through the whole catechism, it's going to be explaining that answer, where we find our comfort and what Jesus has done for us and that he has given himself to us so that we would belong body and soul to him. What I'd like to do this morning instead is simply look at some of the main stones, the main building blocks um, that go into this question with the confidence that we'll cover all of this in the coming year and a half or so. The first question and answer of the catechism are actually quite familiar to us because we recite it 13 times a year. Uh, you ever wonder how the church catechizes you? We actually catechize you through worship as part of our goal. Right, so 13 times a year, you confess the Apostles' Creed, 13 times the Nicene Creed, 13 times the Ten Commandments and Responsive Readings, 13 times the Heidelberg Catechism, and in a leap year, you get a bonus. And um, the reality, of course, is, is if you spend enough time in the church, three, four, five years, certainly for the children that grew up in the church, without even thinking about it, they'll absorb this stuff. It'll just come out of, off their lips. And I should say, I had an experience with this myself growing up, uh, I grew up in a very liberal church, a church that honestly had committed covenant suicide. I do not recall ever hearing the gospel in the church from anybody, certainly not in a sermon. Um, when I was a young child, um, my Sunday school teachers, I realized very quickly that they thought they were teaching us Bible stories, you know, stories for kids. They didn't believe them. We even had an elder in our church that believed in reincarnation, which I hope you realize is uh, something that's totally incompatible with Christianity. But here's the thing. They hadn't changed the liturgy yet. And they hadn't changed the hymnal yet. And so I got all this good theology through hymns and reciting the Apostles' Creed, which, of course, I memorized without even thinking about it. And it turns out if you actually know the Apostles' Creed really well, it's a safeguard against a lot of doctrinal error in this life. And so are many of the great hymns of the faith. We try to do that. One of them is the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. I want to suggest that this question and answer is particularly important in this day and age because it is radically countercultural, right? My only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own. In American culture, everyone's saying, no, I am my own. I'm going to do it my way. Young people are being encouraged, um, you know, ignore what your parents think. The key thing is be true to yourself. By the way, you know, uh, Shakespeare's often quoted on this, you know, above all else, Horatio, to thy own self be true. And when Shakespeare wrote that, it was a laugh line. The, the guy who's giving it is kind of giving these platitudes, but he actually is a fool. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And the oddest thing is, is in modern America, people think this is a bit of wisdom. Above all else, to your, to your own self be true. Uh, no, no, that's wrong. Um, truth does not come from inside of me. Truth comes from God, who is outside of me. And, and, and if I'm going to follow my own desires and will on everything, I'm just going to make a complete shipwreck of my life. How countercultural is it to say that we are not our own? Um, I was reminded this week, Americans have a magazine called Self. I mean, it's not too hard to figure. I haven't read it. If any of you read Self, maybe it's, maybe it's a really insightful magazine. But uh, I'm thinking the marketing campaign is designed to say, it's all about you. Um, for some of you who are young, you have some young people here, 
For some of you who are young, this would really shock you to discover that in my lifetime, there were politicians who ran for office telling people, you should vote for me not because of what I'm going to do for you, but because it's the best thing for the country. To call you to make sacrifices for the good of other people while running for office. And we're now at a place where, honestly, pretty much all the politicians, at least they're running at national office, they're going to pander to you and say, you should vote for me and I'll steal money from other people and give it to you. Right? Well, they don't say steal. That, that, was, that was a little commentary, political commentary from your pastor. Um, I'm going to take other people's money and give it to you, and so you should vote for me. That's a radical shift in how we think. It has become commonplace for people to give radically selfish advice as well. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard in the last few years this given as though it's really good advice. Um, everybody who is um, not making you happy, cut them out of your life. Really. Uh, so I was curious. I went on to Google, because that's the source of all knowledge today, and I, I Googled um, selfish people, just kind of curious. And actually, a whole bunch of articles came up on how to deal with selfish people. Now, I grant this was, um, I know Google has an algorithm, but this was not a scientific sampling. This was just a random group. But I start reading these things. Anybody have any idea the type of advice that is given in these articles about how to deal with selfish people? Anyone at all? Well, be selfish, though. Yeah, cut them out of your life. That's one of them. But even when it wasn't, the advice given on how to deal with selfish people was for you to be selfish. Nobody talks about how to love the selfish person. Um, I almost expected someone to say, you know how frustrating it is to talk to other people who think that they're the center of the universe and they don't realize that I am? Right? And that's what these articles are doing. So, so my point is, is this has just become part and parcel of our culture where loving yourself trumps everything else. But here's one of the things I hope you will remember this morning. While our current cultural moment is particularly crass about promoting selfishness and um, this radical sense of individualism, it's by no means unique. This is part of human sin from the very beginning. Uh, even if you don't go back to the very beginning and we just go back to uh, 1969, it was 1969 when Frank Sinatra first sang, I did it my way. And it was 1875 when William Ernest Henley wrote Invictus. Uh, I'm sure you've all heard that poem. It gets recited at graduations and other things. Um, Invictus famously begins, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. And then it ends with just a direct blast against Christianity. It matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But you know, that resonates with Americans. Maybe it resonates with you. It's kind of actually, you know, it's a good poem in terms of its meter and everything. It's, it's kind of stirring. I am the master of my soul. That is not a place where you're going to find comfort either in life 
or in death. You see how radically countercultural it is, therefore, to confess that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, ordinarily, the thought of belonging to someone else, we're talking about being a slave here, your property of someone else, it's a horrible thought. Now, there are times throughout history where extreme, extreme exceptions to the rule where someone is such a benevolent master that slaves, when they would be set free, actually choose and say, I'd rather stay in my master's household because he's been so good to me. But do you realize how many decimal points you are out before that's really a reality? Slavery to another sinful human being is a horrible state. That's why Apostle Paul urges Christians who are slaves to you know, get their freedom if they have an opportunity for it. Why is it so bad, though? It's because we're slaves to other finite, fallible, sinful human beings. The reason why there's comfort in belonging body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, is because of who he is and because of what he does for his people. See, Jesus isn't like us. As the Catechism rightly puts it, he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. See, that's not the way human masters work. Human masters sacrifice the slaves for the master. Jesus sacrifices himself for you. You can even think about that the way chess gets played. You know on a chessboard? You sacrifice the pawns for the king. Jesus is the king who gives his life for the pawns. That's what makes it so different. Oh, just as an aside, you've you've heard me. This is a little, we all have our little personal quirks. Um, Okay, I have a bunch of them, and some of them aren't so little. But one of them is uh, the ESV translators, and it's a fine translation. We use it in our church. But the ESV translators have often done a lot of marketing that's really unfair to the other Bible translations, such as the New International Version and so on. And, um, but one of the things that just blew me away was listening to them actually talking in their meeting about why they took the word slave out of the, Greek New, Te- out of the New Testament when they translated it. So in the New Testament, the word is doulos, which, you know, it could be servant in some context, but ordinarily what it means is slave. I actually have a t-shirt, thankfully to the two of you, that says, doulos Jesu Christu, slave of Jesus Christ. Right? And um, the Apostle Paul, that's what he says. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. I belong body and soul to him. And the ESV translators took it out of the ESV, and they said, slave has become an irredeemable term in our culture. And I shouted back at the screen, because I was just watching it on video, Don't you understand? That's precisely what Christ did. He redeemed this term. Being a slave to Bob, that's horrible. Being a slave to Jesus Christ, well, that's my only comfort in life and in death. Keep reading your ESVs. It's a fine translation. You know, us theologians, we get to nitpick just a little bit. Uh, but if I was doing it, I would write slave in, in my translation. I think John MacArthur was trying to do that. You know, they, they've come out with, does anyone know this? 
They came out with a new updated version of the American Standard Bible, and I know they've used some things that all translations should do. Like in the Old Testament, they use Yahweh instead of Lord. Helps make it clear it's the covenant name of God, not a title. Does anyone know if they changed it to slave in the New Testament? Dr. MacArthur didn't do the translation, but he was like the oversight for it because it was done for uh, this update. But he actually wrote a a book with the title Slave just to make that point. I don't know if his book's any good, but I do agree with his conclusion. Okay, here's the point. The better that you know Christ's character in heart, the more comfort and joy you will gain from knowing that he isn't only your Savior, he's also your Sovereign Lord. See, your comfort doesn't come simply because Jesus is your Lord. Your comfort comes from knowing Jesus and his character. The better you get to know Jesus, the more comfort you will enjoy. And see, that's something we can all work on. The better you get to know Jesus, the more comfort you will enjoy from knowing that you belong body and soul to him and he is your faithful savior. This means, among other things, that Christ's work in and for your life is not limited to what he did on the cross 2,000 years ago. See, Jesus is ever living to intercede for you right now. Well, that gives you, that's always good for you. It'll give you more comfort if you remember it. That you give God thanks for the fact that Jesus is praying for us right now. And because you are united to Christ through faith, the eternal Father of Jesus Christ has adopted you into his family. Right now, and also next week, and every moment until he calls you home, our Father in heaven is watching over you in such a way that not a hair can fall from your head apart from his fatherly care. Beloved, that's extraordinary. In fact, all things must work together for your salvation. Please realize when it says all things must work together, that's actually personal. God is working all things together for your salvation. What things? All things. So rather than trying to declare our independence from Almighty God, that's how people are trying to find you know, peace. I'm at war with God, but I'm going to declare my independence with him so if he stays over there and I stay over here, I'll be fine. Well, one thing, God's not going to stay over there. He's the almighty God who rules over every molecule in the universe. But rather than trying to declare our independence from almighty God, we have every reason to delight in our dependence upon him. I want to offer you just uh, one illustration. We'll take your questions. We'll close. Here's a very simple thing. And actually, both Christians and non-Christians use this term, but it means something very different to us. Vocation. What is the difference between a vocation and a job? By the way, Christians have jobs too, right? So it's not like we just skate over things. Um, there are times in life where you will have jobs that you are doing that really aren't your vocation in the sense of, you know, you have a sense that this is really what God is calling me to do with my life. It's, um, well, you know, I prefer to, like, have a roof over my head and eat food. And so I go and do things that I get paid for so I can pay rent and buy food. That's life. That's okay. I mean, it's part of being in a fallen world, but that's a perfectly good thing for us all to do. But we also have a sense of vocation. You remember in the medieval church, people tended to think of vocation really only in terms of the civil rulers have vocation, the priests and the monks have vocations, right? But, you know, most people, well, you just work. One of the great things that was recovered in the 
Protestant Reformation is that's not God's plan for your life at all. God has a call upon all of your lives. The difference between a job and a vocation is vocation means calling. God has a plan for you. It may not be what you're doing for work, right? Uh, You don't have to get paid for your vocation. Your vocation is something that you're doing for the sake of the kingdom of God where you are making a difference in the lives of other people for the sake of God's glory. Beloved, if God doesn't have a call upon your life and you don't belong to him, there's no such thing as vocation. And I want to suggest that work, apart from calling, becomes meaningless. We talk about people getting distracted earlier with various things and causes and so on. Um, you can go for a while, a while, a couple years, you know, on I'm getting promoted. I made more money. Because I made more money, I bought a nice house. I got a speedboat. But you know what actually happens is, is people, people that are successful in careers often start using those things to distract themselves from the fact that they find their lives meaningless. Um, I don't know how many of you love golf, so I'm not saying there's anything wrong playing golf. Go play golf. Enjoy it. I did notice, however, when I was in the business world, um, that there were a lot of people that I worked with who hated their jobs. And actually, things like playing golf was a way of buying themselves off. We still make plenty of money. I can go play golf. While I have this job that I really think is meaningless. Uh, I hope none of you will do that, because that's actually a really crushing way to uh, to live and to die. But see, by God's grace, if you belong body and soul to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, everything you do is filled with meaning. When you go teach third graders Sunday school, when you talk to the cashier at the supermarket and you're checking out and you encourage her or him, that has meaning to it. Because Jesus is there with you and he's working through you. You should get comfort from that. Questions or um, thoughts on this first question and answer, or maybe from the second one as well that may have popped into your head before we close this morning? My only comment. Oh, I should, just one thing for you here. Note the language. It's very strong. My only comfort. Um, That doesn't mean that God doesn't use means. That is, within this comfort of belonging body and soul to Jesus Christ, he does other things. He brings things in our lives that gives us comfort. That's included. But it does mean that this isn't just one of the options on the table. Right? Your comfort comes to you just like grace comes to you in Jesus Christ. Judy. Um, one big thing we left out when we were talking about where people seek uh, comfort uh, outside of God is the humongous uh, pressure for promiscuous sex of all kinds. And pushing children into who, how do they identify themselves from the earliest yeah. So it's a, it's, a, it's a terrible thing, but it's trying to give, supposedly we're trying to give identity and meaning to people as they find themselves. I'm going to split that answer. Judy actually gave two really good answers that connect to a way that people try to distract themselves to escape the misery of this life. And one of those is sex. And the truth is, a great deal of, um, in my judgment, but I, I, I had worked with teenagers for years and did study some of this, a great deal of why many young people engage in sex besides of curiosity is precisely in the hope that in sex they'll find meaning and comfort and actually get a relationship and someone else will actually really love them, right? And it turns out it's empty, of course, you know, um, 
when, when a 17-year-old goes and has sex with another 17-year-old, it's not love. So it's empty, but it is actually very common. Regrettably, a lot of people don't learn from that, that error. And so later in life, people are still pursuing that. Right? And you'll see that, um, um, I'm going to pick on men here, but women do it too, that men have these midlife crises when they realize their life is actually pretty meaningless, and then they cheat on their wife, they have an affair. And you know how crazy that is. I'm going to risk totally ruining my marriage, my family life, being ashamed, although there's less shame today than there used to be, because I am so desperate to try to fill this need in my life because she understands me. Well, at least that's what's imagined, right? But the second part of what Judy suggested about pushing kids into, you know, this whole thing's about finding your identity when you're 14 years old. Are you really a boy? Are you really a girl? You could change that and so on. I want to suggest that's a terrible burden that's pushed on children. Right? Society should have guardrails. But it actually touches on what Michelle was saying earlier. The adults who are finding meaning in promoting those agendas. Right? I am a really enlightened person. I'm not like, you know, you stuck up fundamentalist or something because, um, you know, I gave my 13-year-old um, boy hormone blockers. Right? That, shows, that shows that I have an identity. And this is really powerful, by the way. People will often not give up on these identity markers in spite of the evidence that it's messing up their lives and the lives of their children. Because people need comfort. And here's the good news. You know where they could find it. Right? So you don't have to beat everyone up because they're finding comfort in bad things. Like, what's the matter with you? You're a drunk. Because I got something a lot better for you than getting drunk. Your sins can be completely forgiven. You can have meaning in life because you could belong body and soul to Jesus Christ as your faithful Savior. And he will cause your life to matter not only for right now, but for all eternity. Well, that's pretty good news. Why don't we close there? Peter, would you pray?